0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, everyone. It's Manoush here. quick note before we start the show. The end of the year is a great time to reflect on all the things we're grateful for – Which reminds me of someone who takes gratitude to the next level. TED speaker, A.J. Jacobs. So A.J. wanted to thank every single person involved in making his morning cup of coffee. From the farmer of the beans, to the trucker, all the way to the barista.
1: It doesn't just take a village to make a cup of coffee, it takes the world.
0: If we apply that same mindset to how your favorite NPR shows are made... That process also might surprise you. The TED Radio Hour isn't just me sitting down with TED speakers and chatting. It involves a ton of people, from our interns to audio engineers to producers and editors who all help shape the content you hear in each episode. And okay, we are not saying you have to take things as far as AJ did, thanking everyone responsible for your podcasts.
1: I could have spent the next 50 years of my life thanking people because, yeah, That's what it made me realize, how many people it takes.
0: But what you can do is donate to your local NPR station. Giving on the local level creates a ripple effect that positively affects the whole public radio network at large, including our show. So if you like what you hear... Take a moment to acknowledge all the people who make public radio possible and donate to your local radio station. Even a small amount helps. You can donate right now at donate.npr.org slash TED Radio. And thank you. This is the TED Radio Hour. and NPR. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, and let's start today's show in the 1920s. Let me be concrete. We have passed through a great war. A hundred thousand Americans had died in World War One, resource, and 20 to 40 country. million lives were lost worldwide to the 1918 pandemic.
2: That in this respect also we are moving forward.
0: And after all that devastation, people just wanted to forget about their troubles. The roaring 20s, a time of growth and prosperity, or so it seemed. It was the first time that in
3: the United States there were more people, as many or more people in cities rather than in in rural areas, either on the farm or tied to the farm economy. You know, there was jazz, there were telephones, and people can drive cars. You have uh, ribbons of highway that
0: were being built and, and shopping malls, uh, fast food, all of it. This is author and journalist Kathleen Day. She studies the history of finance especially during times of crisis. And she says that the 20s were a decade of excess when the goal became to dress better, spend more, and
3: outdo your neighbors. People began to start to compare themselves with each other in a way that they
0: hadn't previously. Like in this reenactment of a 1922 dry cleaning ad.
1: So, you're invited out to spend a week with Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And if
0: there is one thing you are always striving to do, it's to keep up with the Joneses. People started using credit like never before, spending money that they didn't have. It
3: began to be acceptable to borrow money for items that were not essential.
0: As F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about New York City in 1926, the parties were bigger, the pace was faster, the morals were looser, and the liquor was cheaper. It was a significant mental shift. And part of why people were spending so much money— was because of something not that sexy, war bonds.
3: This was Americans' first time really buying some type of security en masse. So by the end of the war, when people got repaid their money, Americans as a population had had a very good experience with the investing in securities. So that kind of sets the stage for the 20s when it comes to finance.
0: And it also sets the stage... For the biggest stock market crash of the century in 1929.
3: It was a recipe for disaster. It, it
0: created what we now know as the Great Depression. Depressions, recessions, bubbles and the blue skies. It can be the best of times. Money became a source of happiness. And then just a few years later.
1: You are running out of money.
0: The U.S. economy as we know it, powered by credit and consumerism, has been around for about 100 years, building up unbelievable wealth, but also melting down over and over again. And you got to wonder, are we repeating the same financial mistakes? And so on this episode, we'll explore personal stories and lessons from the past and ideas about how we can learn from the current financial crisis— to build a more stable future. And so back to Kathleen Day. She says that many of our current financial systems actually came out of the Depression and that the 1920s and the 2020s have one big thing in common. The disparity in
3: wealth that we have today, the last time it was this great, is in the
0: 20s. Okay, so let's go to the end of the decade, 1929. The stock market crashes. But why where was the government and the federal reserve which is supposed to keep the banks in check
3: Well it was it what happened is the fed had raised rates at the beginning of the decade and then it kept rates very low in the middle of the decade and it did that with an eye to helping Europe remember we'd all just come out of this war so we're gonna keep our interest rates low relative to their rates so that people will invest there. Well, of course, that made it easier to borrow money in the United States. So there was too much borrowing of money. It was too much borrowed money chasing too few good assets. So there was a sort of no holds bars, we'll lend you money. And if you keep lending people money to go out and buy something, you've created an a demand that you can describe as artificial. So it's it's a bubble. And the Fed was so worried about doing anything, of lowering rates, because they were afraid of piercing that bubble.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But they had helped create it. And by allowing it to go on, they allowed it to grow bigger. So eventually, it's unsustainable. And then you had Black Thursday, where you had the real bloodbath. And when the dust had settled, stock prices had fallen 85% from their high.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So it was a big drop. And people lost their shirts.
0: I mean, it was a total disaster, right? Wall Street just got wiped out. And and that made a lot of people freak out about getting their cash from their banks. But did the government know how to stop people from having a run on the banks?
3: Well, remember, there was no deposit insurance. So mm-hmm. people were running to their banks and saying, we want our money. They were afraid. And so right after the crash, you had about... 30 to 40% of the banks in the United States fail in about three years. (laughs) And the Fed didn't exercise its authority as a lender of last resort. Mm -hmm. The Fed has this very powerful tool as a central banker where it can go in and give them cash so that when everyone comes running in and says, give me my money, give me my money, you have the cash to give them. And this is called the paradox of banking. If you can go in and get your money from the bank and you know you can, you don't want it. But if you think there's any chance you can't get it that's when you show up and say fill fill my fill the suitcase with my cash <laughs> give me my money
0: okay so so the fed had the authority to give banks money but it didn't do that and that's when tens of thousands of banks failed and people lost their life savings
3: yes things were so dire 25% unemployment 10,000 banks failed. Contraction of credit. So it was a pretty grim time.
4: Once I built a railroad, now it's done. brother, can you spare a dime?
0: I mean, we've all heard stories about the Great Depression, which actually sound a lot like what people are going through today. Like so many people losing their jobs, being evicted from their homes, bread lines. But then... 1933, right? That was kind of a pivotal moment. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, comes into office, and there's this sort of sense that the government needs to be more responsible going forward for the health of the economy. Is that right? Yes.
3: Uh, up until this point in the American psyche, people did not look to the federal government, the president, let's say the president and the Fed, as the keepers of the economy. So FDR coming along came into a crisis where the banks effectively, as an industry, were crippled. Ladies and gentlemen,
5: the president
6: of the United States, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. And so what he did is he
3: declared a bank holiday and said, everybody, just stop. We're just, you can't get your money. We're just going to take a brief brief
6: breather here
3: and let everybody calm down.
6: (laughs) This bank holiday, while resulting in many cases in great inconvenience, is affording us the opportunity to supply the currency necessary to meet the situation. So much of
3: what happens in a crisis, not all of it, but so much of it, comes from the fear of not knowing what's going on so he comes along and all these banks have failed and there's been this idea that's of insuring deposits at banks to prevent these runs so that people won't go and run every time there's a financial problem they won't go and run and demand their money because they know it's guaranteed
6: after all there is an element in the readjustment of our financial system more important than currency more important than gold that is the confidence of the people themselves.
5: The
0: and so this was the start of deposit insurance, like that FDIC sticker that you see on the front of a bank. And and it meant that if I put my money in the bank, the U.S. government will guarantee that it's safe. And that was a big deal, right? It's a huge deal.
3: Deposit insurance changed everything. Overnight, bank runs stopped they stopped cold. And, you know, the bank holiday was lifted. People had deposit insurance. It literally stopped it overnight. Now, during the 30s, you also had lots of other changes that were put in place. You had the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. You had standardization of accounting rules. So there were a whole series of laws put into place. And deposit insurance while it was put in pl- its effect is to make individuals have confidence they can get their money out of banks but the real reason the real purpose of deposit insurance is to keep the economy stable and prevent the kind of runs on banks that have destabilized the economy
0: hmm. okay so let's just take a pause here though because here we are a century later in a different kind of financial crisis, but they do keep happening. I mean, it used to be every 20 years. Now it feels like it's every 10 years. Is that why we should learn and understand what happened a 100 years ago? Because we never got the lesson? And, and it, I guess if not, like what does that say about the American
3: psyche? I think one characteristic of Americans and of our culture is optimism. And there is this amnesia and people believe things that, if they thought about it, just are too good to be true. So I think two things that are often key ingredients in, in financial crises are too much borrowed money. Instead of making good investments, people start making riskier and riskier investments. And lack of oversight Uh, By the government, they regulators forget their duty to taxpayers. That's who they're there for. They're supposed to regulate the system, in exchange for the system getting those benefits. So what you really want at a time like this, and it's too bad the government can't get it together to do it, but what you want is to have some kind of relief that does not follow people forever as debt does. You want to be able to give people a means to 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 tide themselves over during this period without then coming out of it completely drowning in debt i mean a pandemic is a pandemic but the things that we keep forgetting is to is is over using too much borrowed money um regulators forgetting their job and people just believing things that are too good to be true if it's too good to be true it probably is and that's i don't know whether we've learned that lesson
0: that's journalist Kathleen Day. She's the author of the book Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. Today on the show, a century of money. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support
4: for NPR and the following message come from W.W. W. Norton & Company, publishers of The Road to Freedom, Economics, and the Good Society by Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph E. Stiglitz. The Road to Freedom, available now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And on the show today, a century of money. We heard about how buying on credit and making risky investments became the American way in the 1920s. Let's fast forward now to an example of that legacy in this century, the housing bubble of the early 2000s, and a story about what happened to one family when that market began to go south.
5: We're living in a time where people can have everything that they want if they can make a payment.
0: People get trapped in that. This is Tammy Lally. And I am a money coach. Okay, but Tammy, you weren't always a financial advisor, right? Like before that, you had your own financial issues. When you were growing up, what was the story around money? That it was scarce.
5: I grew up with a single mom with three children. I was the youngest in a predominantly Catholic town in 1975. I was the the kid of a domestic worker And I lived in a neighborhood that was an upper-class neighborhood. So doctors, lawyers, and I went to school with their children. So we didn't, my brothers and I really didn't know what we didn't have Uh until we were told, you know, by the kids. Um, And for, yeah. But what happened to me then was that I internalized it to believe that there was something wrong with me. And the shame never went away. Money became a source of happiness. Mm. So I did become a high earner. I chose my career, you know, a sales career in my early 20s so that I could become a high earner. I was driving a Mercedes by the time I was 23, you know, had a very extensive wardrobe from Nordstrom.
0: And I just covered up all the shame with materialism. That was how Tammy dealt with her issues with money until everything changed in 2006. If you remember, there were some early warning signs of a massive housing bubble. For Tammy, those warning signs came in the form of a phone call from her brother.
5: It was his 40th birthday, and he called me. And it was so interesting because I was like, hey, your birthday, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, let's get together, I'd like to take you out to dinner. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, what's up? And... um he said, I'm just really in dire straits, you know, I'm just really, and I was like, okay, okay, and I didn't know where the, where the conversation was really going, and then he said, I need to borrow money. I need to borrow $7,500, which, you know, $7,500 is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a breaking point for him, and I said, well, I'm happy to lend you the money, but let's get together. I'd like to know what's really happening and see if I can help in
0: it in some other way. Because you knew, he knew you were good with spreadsheets and budgeting and things like that. Yeah,
5: and I had been in the mortgage business. And part of what was, he was saying to me was, you know, our mortgage is so high and
6: mm-hmm.
5: we've got this short-term arm. You know, back then it was these two-year arms because his credit had dipped. And, Which meant that the payments would skyrocket within a couple of years. Right. And his credit score was low. So oh. he didn't have a lot of choices because he couldn't keep up with the payments, so he'd have late payments. And and so um, I really wanted to get together with him, and so I did. Within within a couple weeks, I met him and his wife at a, at a Starbucks, you know, close to where they lived. And it was a very long meeting. I mean, we were there four or five hours trying to, like, help them... You know, understand. I mean, they brought their credit report and their bank statements. And were oh, go- you were going through it yeah. with
0: them, like in, yeah. the,
5: in the weeds. Yeah, Starbucks. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I just didn't know what was really happening between them. But I, I, there was a lot of tension. They started blaming each other. And, and I just was kind of like, what's going on with you guys? Like, mm. this is math. On paper, it was a math solution spend less, earn more. But there was no way that those two could have done that with their emotional, uh, mental capacity, Hmm. because we all hide from our family. So my energy got like buck up because you've got kids. And, you know, kind of wrapping up that meeting – you know, we left it off with he was going to take some action steps around looking for work that paid more and she was going to, you know, start working more hours and they were going to cut back. And it all seemed like it was a good, you yeah, know. You
0: came up with a plan, it sounds right. like.
5: And that was, that was, a, it turns out to be the last time I saw him.
0: Tammy continues her story from the TED stage.
5: Two months went by when I received a call. Tam I have bad news. Keith committed suicide last night. Days later at his home, I went looking for answers. In his office, the garage, there I found a stack of overdue credit card bills and a foreclosure notice served to him on the day that he died. My brother left behind his beautiful 10-year-old daughter, his brilliant 18-year-old son, weeks before his high school graduation, and his wife of 20 years. How did this happen? My brother was caught in our family's money-shame cycle, and he was far from alone in this. Suicide rates among adults ages 40 to 64, have risen nearly 40% since 1999. Job loss, bankruptcy, and foreclosures were present in nearly 40% of the deaths, with white, middle-aged men accounting for 7 out of 10 suicides. You know, those are the things that just break you. This was about money. I knew it was. Um, I knew it was about shame. Uh, and
0: you know, just... We are so grateful that you are sharing this very personal story, though, because I do think people learn and listen and understand that they are not alone with their. Money struggles. That when you're talking about money, you're talking about so much more. You are. I mean, you're talking about mental health. You're talking about emotional
5: maturity. Mm. You're talking about um, addiction. You're talking about trauma. So many of us have so many hard life experiences and have mental health issues yeah. that go, you know, unexamined and unspoke about and. And in hindsight, my brother
0: had mental health issues. If we want to sort of break this link that we have between self-worth and money, how do we even begin to do that when it is so embedded in society, in the way we live, in our families, in our culture? It starts with ourselves. We each have to
5: do our own level of self-inquiry, our own level of work around money. If we examine our beliefs... We examine our behaviors. We examine our reactions. We look for more of a spiritual solution versus a material solution. That's how we change things is by each person taking money on and and stop avoiding it. Stop pretending like it's not the biggest thing you think about. I hear that from a lot of people. Well, I don't care about money. Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) Everybody cares about money. We live in a society where you have to have
0: it. So we might as well learn how to get along with it. That's Tammy Lally. She's a financial advisor. And you can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, we're exploring personal stories from past financial meltdowns and how so many people are just a few missed paychecks away from crisis.
1: There are a lot of people who, on that day-to-day basis, are uh, struggling. And I see it as getting worse, not better.
0: This is writer Elizabeth White, and her crisis began right after the 2008 crash. But up until then, Elizabeth had been doing really well.
1: You know, I have all the props and credentials. I have a Harvard MBA. I have a master's in international studies from Hopkins. I went to Oberlin undergraduate, you know, I worked at the World Bank. I have this background. And all of a sudden, during the Great Recession, I lost two big consultancies, and suddenly I'm unemployed at 55. And I actually wasn't worried because of my background and my network. And, you know, I'd been out of work before and pretty quickly found something. But this was different, suddenly here you are looking in on a life that's not yours anymore. What do you do when that's your story?
0: In conversations with friends, Elizabeth heard lots of stories that sounded like hers. And so a few years ago, she decided to write an essay about what it's like to lose your safety net in your 50s. And I asked her to read it for us.
1: You know me. I'm in your friendship circle, hidden in plain sight. My clothes are still impeccable, bought in the good years when I was still making money. To look at me, you would not know that my electricity was cut off last week for non-payment or that I meet the eligibility requirements for food stamps. But if you paid attention, you would see the sadness in my eyes, hear that hint of fear in my otherwise self-assured voice. These days, I buy the $1.99 trial-sized jug of Thai to make ends meet. You didn't know laundry detergent came in that size. You invite me to the same expensive restaurants that the two of us have always enjoyed, but I order mineral water now with a twist of lemon instead of the $12 glass of Chardonnay. I am frugal in my menu choices, counting every penny in my head, I demure, dividing the table bill evenly to cover desserts, designer coffees, and second and third glasses of wine I did not consume. I am tired of trying to keep up appearances. Faking normal is wearing me out. There are no media stories about me. My slide out of the middle class is not sensational enough. A friend says I'm broke, not poor, and that there's a difference— I live without cable, my gym membership, or nail appointments. I've discovered I can do my own hair. I have no retirement savings, no nest egg. I exhausted that long ago. There is no expensive condo from which to draw equity and no husband to back me up. Months of slow pay and no pay have decimated my credit. Bill collectors call me constantly reading verbatim from a script expressing polite sympathy for my plight before demanding payment arrangements I can't possibly meet. Friends wonder privately how someone so well-educated could be an economic freefall. I am still as talented as ever and as smart as a whip, but my work is sketchy now, mostly on and off consulting gigs. Friends hear about this and that assignment, but can't remember when I had a real job. At 55, I've learned how to fake cheeriness and to appear to be engaged, but my phone doesn't ring with opportunities anymore. I don't remember exactly when it stopped, but I cannot deny now having entered the uncertain world of formerly and used to be. In the face of mega-generational shifts, I'm not sure anymore where I belong. What I do know is that dozens of online job applications seem to disappear into a black hole. I am convinced that employers have set their online job recruitment algorithms to reject anyone who graduated before 1995. I wonder what is to become of me. I am facing a work-for-life proposition. So far, my health has held up, but my body aches. Or is it my spirit? Homeless women used to be invisible to me, but I appraise them now with curious eyes, wondering if their stories started like mine.
0: So that original essay from 2016, what was the response to the essay? It seemed to resonate with a lot of people. What was that? What happened?
1: So... I wrote uh, this essay at a point of real personal despair. I remember I wrote it in one go, sort of sitting on my bed, and I just wrote what I was feeling. And within a couple of days, it had thousands of likes and over a thousand comments. And I read all of them. And I was so surprised because the response was, me too, my husband, this is my sister, this is myself, why is no one uh, talking about this? And when I looked at the data, I was astonished because I realized that there were millions of people who had landed here. There's now, like, really good data that shows that more than half of people in their 50s are pushed out of the workforce. And we like to pretend that our financial woes, that the financial woes that many Americans are experiencing, are not systemic. That it's the result of being lazy or irresponsible, And so there's a big shame element here when people land here. They don't want to talk about it. And what's dangerous about not talking about it is when we're in denial, we then don't address it. Here's Elizabeth White on the
0: TED stage.
1: Millions of boomer-age Americans did not land here because of too many trips to Starbucks. We've spent the last three decades dealing with flat and falling wages and disappearing pensions and through-the-roof costs on housing and health care and education. It used to not be like this. We all remember the three-legged retirement income stool. Savings and pension and Social Security. Well, that stool has gone wobbly. Take savings. What savings? For many families, there's just nothing left to save after the bills have been paid. The pension leg of the stool has also gone wobbly. We can remember when many people had pensions. Today, only 13% of American workers are employed by companies that offer them. So what did we get instead? We got 401k-type plans. And suddenly, responsibility for retirement planning got shifted from our companies to us. We got the reins, but we also got the risk. And it turns out that millions of us just aren't that good at voluntarily investing over 40 years. Millions of us just aren't that good at managing market risk. And really, the numbers tell the story. Half of all American households have no retirement savings at all. That would be zero. No 401k, no IRA, not a dime. Things have changed a lot from when Social Security was introduced back in 1935. Then a 21-year-old male had a 50% chance of living until he was 65. So he he retired at 60, did a little fishing, kissed his grandkids, got his gold watch. He'd be dead within five years of receiving benefits. That's not the pattern today. If you're in your late 50s and good health, you're going to live Easily another 20 or 25 years. That's a really long time to make ends meet if you are broke.
0: After the break, more from Elizabeth White on how financial meltdowns affect older adults from 2008 to today. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment. On board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. On the show today, A Century of Money. Before the break, we were hearing from Elizabeth White, who described hitting rock bottom after the 2008 recession. We actually spoke to Elizabeth before the pandemic began. But of course, the conversation has changed a lot since then. And so we wanted to talk to her again. Elizabeth, how are you? How have you been since the start of the pandemic?
1: You know, I've been all over the place. But I was saying yesterday to a friend, I'm 90% good is how I would describe it.
0: Since we last spoke... Millions of people have gone through almost exactly what you described going through uh, after the 2008 recession, going from being fine to not being fine at all. And I think it's been really shocking for a lot of people. Have, have you been hearing stories about what is happening, especially for older people right now?
1: I definitely um, still hear from people uh, who uh, still write, and I've done some writing myself about this. One of the things I think that's different um, this time, so for, you know, as big as the 2008-2009 Great Recession was, We already in uh, just these last few months have had more people lose their jobs than during that whole period of the Great Recession. And with older adults, we're gonna be more impacted than people who are younger. I've already described the, the, the stats that say half the people are losing their jobs in their 50s. That was happening before the pandemic only 10% of those workers will ever get a job again with pay that's commensurate with the job that they left. So I always think now when I see, you know, when we used to go to the gym and you'd see someone at the front desk, an older worker, or you see somebody suddenly, you know, bagging groceries somewhere, they're maybe not there because they want to be. All of these people didn't suddenly become incompetent in their 50s when they get pushed out of the workforce. Mm. The crisis with jobs is not just jobs. We have a good jobs crisis. That home health aide taking care of somebody's 87-year-old mother makes $17,000 a year on average. She has no child care often, no health care, uh, no hazard care. So you, you can be employed, but then you can't re- barely support yourself. You have turned your
0: experience essentially into an expertise in helping older people face economic disasters. But the safety nets that you're talking about, the ones that have gone away, are actually, they are not age specific, right? Yeah,
1: you know, so this is not a pesky little boomer problem. Gen Xers are not going to have pensions either. Millennials are definitely not going to have pensions. Everybody is facing higher cost in housing and healthcare. So boomers, we're just first going up this hill, looking out into the future of what will it mean to be an older person in in America? So kind of all of this, I think it is it is ripe now to have this conversation, to address things that the pandemic revealed, but were always there.
0: That's writer Elizabeth White. Her book is called 55 Underemployed and Faking Normal. You can find her full talk at TED.com. So Elizabeth just mentioned that the U.S. doesn't have a jobs crisis right now. It really has a good jobs crisis, which means that a lot of people can't earn enough to afford the very basics. And so maybe we need to ask a bigger question, like what responsibility do employers, especially big corporations, have to their lowest paid workers? For our next speaker, that question is key to building a more stable economy. Uh, can you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do? I am Abigail Disney,
6: and I am a filmmaker, and I guess you would call me a philanthropist and an activist.
0: Okay, wait, so Abigail Disney. Yo, yes, Disney. Like, yes, that Disney, <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. What is your connection to Disney World, Disney films, Mickey Mouse, all those things?
6: So my grandfather was Roy O. Disney, who was Walt Disney's brother. They co-founded the company together in the 1920s. My father was Roy E. Disney, who was at the company for, I don't know, 50, 60 years, most of his adult life as different things, including the co-chair of the board.
0: Abigail never worked for the Disney Corporation herself, but she is a shareholder. And growing up, Disney was a big part of her life. It was very much my upbringing, and um, I did ride with my grandfather
6: on the first boat in the first small world ride, so that was awesome.
0: Oh my God, I'm going to tell my mother-in-law that. She's going to die. That's like
6: her <laughs> favorite thing ever.
0: Abigail Disney picks up the story in her TED Talk. Two things I remember the best about going to Disneyland with
6: my grandfather. The first thing was he always gave me a stern warning that if I ever sassed anybody who worked there, I was in deep doo-doo when we got home. He said, these people work really hard, harder than you can imagine, and they deserve your respect. The other is that he never walked by a piece of garbage inside of Disneyland or anywhere else where he didn't bend over to pick it up. He said, no one's too good to pick up a piece of garbage. In grandpa's day, a job at Disneyland was not a gig. A person could expect to own a home, raise a family, access decent health care, retire in some security on just what he earned there at the park. Mind you, Grandpa fought the unions, and he fought them hard. He wasn't an angel, and everyone wasn't well and fairly treated across the company, something that's well known. But I think, in his core, he had a very deep commitment to the idea that he had a moral obligation to every human being that worked for him. That actually wasn't such an uncommon
0: attitude for CEOs of the day. What's really fascinating to me is that you say, in your grandfather's day, people who worked at Disneyland had a secure job. They could expect a comfortable life. Right. Well,
6: it has to be, first of all, put in the context of, look, there were no people of color working there. Mm -hmm. And women couldn't have any of the jobs that the men had. So let's be very clear that I'm not talking about some halcyon time where everything was fine. But... In that time, a person, even the people who were sweeping the sidewalk in those days, had a salary. And with that salary came, you know, a retirement plan, uh, sick days, health care, and all of the things that we associate with a thriving middle class. And one by one by one at Disney and everywhere else in the American economy, those things were stripped away. And I went to Disneyland once in my 30s and, you know, kind of gave them my special card that has my name on it that gets me free tickets. And there was one employee in the in the guest services window who handed me back my card and my tickets and a note saying, you have to
0: help us. Did you know what he was referring to?
6: Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. I didn't want to believe it at first either, but they weren't exaggerating anything. and. When I sat down with people in a room full of 25 people and I asked how many of you were on food stamps and every hand in the room went up, I wanted to throw up on the spot. I was so angry. When my grandfather died in 1971, a new mindset was beginning to take hold of the American and eventually the global imagination. Jiminy Cricket got shown the door by economist Milton Friedman, among others, who popularized the idea of shareholder primacy. Milton Friedman's pivotal op-ed in the New York Times was followed by decades of concerted organizing and lobbying by business-focused activists, along with a sustained assault on every law and regulation that had once held businesses' worst impulses in check. And soon enough, this new mindset had taken hold across every business school and across every sector. Profits were to be pursued by any means necessary. Unions were kneecapped. Taxes were slashed and with the same machete, so was the safety net. The bottom line is that everything that turns a gig into a livelihood was stripped away from an American worker. Job security, paid sick days, vacation time, all of that went away even as the wealthy saw their net worths float to unprecedented and, yes, unusable levels.
0: Abigail, you are now one of the most outspoken critics of the Disney Corporation, the company that bears your name. And you say it's because of how much things have changed. Like today, the workers at the parks, they're no longer salaried. They're paid by the hour. I read that most of them make as little as $10 or $11 an hour. And a lot of the benefits were, as you say in your talk, stripped away. Exactly. Disney, like every other
6: company, um, messes around with people's hours when they're an hourly worker. So they really try to keep the least number of people possible. Um, working enough so they qualify for healthcare.
0: And so what is your view? Like, uh, what happened? So
6: a lot of laws were passed. Regulations were taken away. Tax laws were changed to sort of support these skyrocketing compensation packages and all of that. But I believe, even though we need laws to get ourselves back to a better place, a better balance anyway, what really shifted was norms. Mm. So my grandfather was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but he would never have taken a $66 million payday in a million years, in part because you just didn't do that then. There was no law against it, but you didn't do it. And partly because he, he, if he looked at his workers and they didn't have enough money to put food on the table, I just cannot imagine a universe in which he would have said that was fine with him. Hmm. And, you know, that's not special to my grandfather. That was how CEOs rolled. There were bad actors and there were terrible people, but the norms at the time were so different. For almost a century, Disney has turned a pretty profit on the idea that families are a kind of magic, that love is important, that imaginations matter. That's why it turns your stomach a little bit when I tell you that Cinderella might be sleeping in her car. But let's be very clear, this is not just about Disney. This is structural and this is systemic. No single CEO on his own is culpable and no single company has the wherewithal to buck this. The analysts, the pundits, the politicians, the business school curricula, And the social norms drive the shape of the contemporary economy. Disney is just doing what everybody else does, and they're not even the worst offender. If I told you how bad it was for workers at Amazon or McDonald's or Walmart or any one of a thousand other places you've never heard of, it's not going to hit you as viscerally as if I tell you that 73% of the people who smile when you walk in, who help you comfort that crying baby, who maybe help you have the best vacation you ever had, can't consistently put food on the table. It's supposed to be the happiest place on earth.
0: So because of the pandemic, um, the Disney parks have let go of tens of thousands of workers. Yeah,
6: 28,000. What are your thoughts on that? They have 200,000 employees. They let 28,000 go, laid them off. 28,000 out of 200,000, a pretty significant um, bite out of your workforce, Not one of those people was in management, and they had also very quietly acted to make sure that the management structure could keep compensation packages intact. Now, I understand the revenues have been eviscerated, but just know that from 2011 to 2019, so eight years, the company had made $11.5 billion in share buybacks. A share buyback is when a company buys shares of its own stock they do that to drive the price up and to make shareholders happy. It also has the nice ancillary benefit of making the CEO and other people who are compensated in shares happy as well. No one could have seen the pandemic coming, no one could have said, We're going to be hit by this thing. But anyone could have foreseen that something bad would have happened for which you should have cash. Mm. So this company went from historic profitability and the happiest shareholders on earth to, less than a year later, laying
0: off 28,000 people and pleading poverty. Okay, so let's talk about what you would like to see happen. I mean, we started this episode with a crash course in the Depression in the 1920s and understanding what radical changes came out of that with the government, with the way we think about money. And I I just want to ask you, We've had now a century of these lessons. Do you think we need another moment where we have a reckoning and say, you know, we need to fix the system. Let's set up a better way of doing this. So what I want to see happen is if I'm a
6: CEO and I know that some of my workers are on food stamps or going to food pantries, I want to be ashamed of myself. Um, I want other people to feel shame on my behalf. The fact that that's not happening says that the CEO considers himself to be of a class and and even a species different and distinct from the people who do the hardest work at the company. The billionaires in this country have gotten much, much, much richer in the pandemic. Um, Because they've taken advantage of what people needed. I was hoping the pandemic would force us all to say, oh, my God, now I see it. Look at the way we're treating the people who do the essential work, you know. And the opposite kind of happened. You know, the Bezoses and everyone else kind of doubled down on the old behaviors.
0: And, and what do you – how do you respond if one of them says, like, well, you know, I hear you about wanting to provide more of a safety net to our – least well-paid employees. But Abigail, I got to run a company here and you Mm -hmm. just don't Mm -hmm. know what it takes to survive in this market. What do you say to that?
6: What I say is there are humans working in your company, human beings. They have all the same needs and desires that you have. You have to treat them with the dignity you would want to be treated with yourself. Like that's just the starting point. Then go make all the profit you want to make. But if your business plan starts with exploitation and you can't make get to profitability without doing that, then you need to go get another business plan. If you really care about your employees, Jeff Bezos, I'm talking to you right now, you should pay them well and maybe make less money and make sure everybody else is making more. They're your fellow human beings, after all. All they want is lives of
0: dignity. That's Abigail Disney. By the way, shortly after we taped this interview, Disney announced that they're laying off another 4,000 workers. You can find Abigail's full talk at TED.com. Thank you so much for listening to our show this week about a century of money. To learn more about the people who were on it, go to TED.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our TED Radio production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motisham, James De J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Farah Safari. Special thanks this week to William Snow for providing a voiceover. Our theme music was written by Romteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you have been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: Take your business further with the smart and flexible Amex Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits that help unlock more value from your business purchases. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card.